This is Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success. All the big questions that relate to work and life and how we manage all of it. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. I'm the author of a book called How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. So on this week's show, we're talking to Tamika Isaac-Divine. She was the first African-American female to be elected to her city council in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, She's also the mayor pro tem in Columbia, South Carolina. And she has, you know, really been at the forefront of community leadership through some really difficult times in that state. So we talk about the removal of the Confederate flag, the Charleston shootings, Black Lives Matter, And just some really great perspectives on leadership and how to make all of this stuff work. You know, family, uh, her job as as an elected official, her other job as an attorney and, you know, all the various different demands that she has placed on her time, how she manages the whole thing together and does so just in such a... Uh, just a a really graceful way, just a real integrity about her and um, really just enjoyed the conversation. So let's get straight into it. This was recorded down the line um, just a few weeks ago. So here's my conversation with Tamika Isaac-Divine. It's um, a real pleasure to be joined by Tamika Isaac-Divine today. Welcome to Beyond Busy. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure to be here with you this morning. Well, uh, whatever time of day. <laughs> I feel like I've been going a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's uh, 11 in the morning UK time. Um, you're in uh, Columbus, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. So um, uh, what time is it there? We at 6 a.m. here. 6 a.m. And you were just telling me before we hit record that um, you you get up even earlier than that, right? Yes. In order for me to get uh, all my work done, we're still kind of on semi-lockdowns. And so I get up about 4.30 so I can get some work done before the kids get up and the day really gets rolling. <laughs> wow. And is that is that a, a lockdown routine or is that a for many years kind of routine? It, you know, Grim, it varies. Um, so it it's for many years when I have like a lot of things to do, it's just morning is my most productive time. When it's quiet, I think well. So uh, when I'm in the mode to write a book or working on a big project, then typically the mornings are when I wake up early. But it's not like every day <laughs> for, yeah. for many years, yeah. uh, but yeah. it's, it's fairly often. Uh, but during the lockdown, I really had to find a way to, especially when, when it was time for school to be in, find a way to do my work, uh, be able to be present for the kids, um, and have you know some kind of production time during uh, for my for all the other things that I do. So I went to a normal four thirty in the morning schedule, and of course I get a lot done in the first couple hours of the day when everybody else is asleep and nobody's saying, "Mommy, I want breakfast." <laughs> so it ends up being um, a, a opportunity for me to be more productive uh, for my day. Yeah, um, I'm a big believer in early starts if I'm writing I'm I'm generally quite I like I like sleep <laughs> a lot and I like I like sleeping in and um, not getting up until eight or nine uh, I could quite comfortably do that most days but if I'm working on a book or something 
and I can set my alarm and go to bed early and create the conditions for it, then I, I really swear by that sort of 5am till 9am stint. I think you can get as much done in five to nine if you play it right as you can in a standard nine to five. Mm-hmm, exactly. So let's paint a picture of where you are. So Columbia, South Carolina, and um, for those people who are listening to this in the UK who maybe have been to New York or been to California, um, just tell us a bit about um, where you are, where you come from, the culture there, uh, what it's like to, to live there. Wow, yes. Well, Columbia, South Carolina is home for me. I grew up here. Um, I did go away to Virginia for college and came right back because I knew I wanted to be home. So South Carolina is in the southeastern part of the United States and Columbia, we're the capital of, uh, of, of South Carolina. So I love Columbia. I describe it where we are two hours from the mountains, two hours from the beach, um, and two hours from Charleston and their good food. So we're right in the smack dab center of South Carolina. And the culture really is um, a typical Southern city. So if anybody has been to um, Charlotte or Charleston or Savannah, um, Columbia is very similar to those um, cities. We are a Southern city that we have great hospitality. uh, So you never meet a stranger if you're here. Um, And our city particularly, our slogan is famously hot, but surprisingly cool. And basically that slogan really dims from we are, because we're in the center of the state, uh, we tend to be pretty humid here in the summers. And so if you visit South Carolina in the summer, it is not unusual to have a span of 100 degree days. um, And it's pretty hot. But we also have a lot of really great, cool things. We've got children's museums and wonderful art museums, a great ballet. And so we get a lot of travelers who are in the Southeast who come here for our culture. And I guess part of your role is that you're, you're a representative of the city, right? So, uh, so you have to kind of uh, talk it up and be an ambassador and, and bring that um, spirit of the city to life. Um, so we should probably start with that. So you, at a very young age, um, became the first African-American female to serve on the city council. Um, so you were 29. This is back in 2002. Um, yeah. And you're still an elected official um, serving on the city council. Yes, I am. Um, and when I first ran for office, I didn't necessarily run for office like thinking, oh, wow, you know, I want to be a politician. Um, it's just like I mentioned, Columbia is home for me. And growing up here and being able like, being able to go away for college and and travel for work and other things, seeing the way the South, particularly in in the United States, was growing, but how some cities had a lot more to offer to young folks. Um, And at the time, the youngest person um, as part of our city representation was our mayor, and he was 50 years old at the time. (laughs) And so for me, then, it seemed really, really old. (laughs) Now, the closer I get to 50, it doesn't seem quite as old. But I, you know, I felt like there was nobody who really represented me and my views and maybe was looking at what Columbia could be. Like we always have been a great, great city, but the things that we needed to do to make Columbia more attractive for young people like me and for people who wanted to visit our city. And so 
I ran for office. I challenged a 16-year incumbent um, and was successful. And I've been serving ever since. And I've, I've enjoyed being a um, city council person. It is here um, in South Carolina. Our city representation is a part-time, quote, part-time job, although it takes a lot of my time. I think we'll but, come on to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what, why I really need um, schedules and systems to be more productive because it's like I have a, a whole nother full-time job. But, um, you know, but it also is very rewarding because I've been able to see over my 18 years and, you know, being able to lead the city and, and my ideas become reality and really change and transform this city into um, the, the culture hub that it is right now. Yeah. So challenging a much older incumbent uh, being women of color, were you 2002's AOC? <laughs> you know, I, you know, maybe so. I don't know if I caused as much trouble as she does. <laughs> I don't mean bad trouble, but, you know, um, I, I certainly was young and had a lot of great ideas and, and folks would tell me, you know, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, so, you know, from a leadership perspective, yeah, I, I really was uh, put it thrust into a position that I had to prove myself very early um, and show that the voters, the confidence that the voters had put in me to elect me was uh, was very well placed. And that although I might have been younger than everybody else I was serving with at the time, I was very smart, uh, very knowledgeable and a hard worker. Um, and so, you know, obviously I, I proved my point because 18 years later, I'm still here. I'm serving my fifth term now and I've served uh, three years as the mayor for town for our city, which basically is like our vice mayor. So when the mayor is, is not able or not in town, then I uh, stand in for him. And I'm curious to know about, in terms of your political career, um, a bit more about the beginning and how you see the end, right? So let's start with the beginning. Um, so you were saying there that you didn't feel like there were people who represented your age group who looked like you who were involved in the council at that time um was there a bit more to it than that in terms of what you wanted to shake up and change and what you wanted to do differently what was your what was your sort of vision and and motivation uh, going into running for office um my motivation was you know yes making sure that i had someone who was representing my demographic was very important uh, but also someone who um, could, you know, was not, you know, part of the kind of old boy system, somebody who was not ingrained in politics to the point where they weren't open to new ideas and change. Um, and see, for me, again, Columbia was home. And so, you know, I grew up here. My dad grew up here. So, you know, I remember uh, even growing up, my dad telling me, you know, he grew up in the segregated South. Um, through, you know, Jim Crow, through civil rights. And I remember him telling me that although Columbia was segregated at the time, it had very thriving um, Black communities in, in Columbia, uh, thriving Black businesses, and how much, you know, you know, the progress of desegregation, as much as the progress was, you know, I think in, in the United States generally, what you also found was because of integration um, and desegregation, you found where traditionally the minority communities ended up being disinvested in, disinvested in. And so, you know, as I ran, I, I saw that 
in reality, I saw the areas that, you know, my grandparents lived in when I was younger and that my dad talked about where he grew up, it not having the same attention that other areas that were high growth areas for the city. So part of my vision was to be, you know, I'm an at-large council member, which means I represent the entire city. I represent the same demographics that the mayor does. And part of my vision was to make sure that every single part of the city felt like that they were supported, that they were listened to by their members on city council, and that they had somebody who was really looking for creative ways to bring back investment and programs. So, you know, that was part of my vision. And although I knew, um, like I said, I probably was a little naive as a, as a young person running for office. Although I knew it wouldn't be easy, I knew that if you didn't have anybody who made it a priority, then it may not actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was part of my vision. And it's really interesting now, you know, 18 years later, of course, there's lots more things I'd love to see happen. Uh, but when I look back on the investment that we as a city have made in some of those areas that were traditionally underserved, I am really proud that um, it's not just me, but we've got a whole council who looks at the entire city. And I think that goes to having somebody in leadership that are constantly talking about, hey, how do we prioritize investment in these areas as well? I used to work with a lot of young volunteers and young leaders. And I often used to say that when you've got vision combined with naivety, good things happen, right? Because (laughs) you don't have that um, you know, slightly more weathered sense of, oh, but this will be hard and this is difficult. There's something about that naivety when you convert it into idealism and motivation that I think is actually a really powerful thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I definitely believe that. And even now, and to your point, that's the important part that even when you've kind of been doing something for a, a certain amount of period of time, you still need that slight bit of of naivety, being naive, because I think what it allows you to do is dream bigger and see what's possible. And so even now, you know, with all the hats that I wear, I, I know I get people a lot of times saying, wow, Tanika, you're doing something else. And I am because I, I continue to see bigger. And I think it's probably because I still keep that little girl in my head that says, mm-hmm. you know, Tanika, you can do anything you set your mind to. And once you master something, you know, that means it may be time for you to start something new. And and that's been a, a really interesting part for me because I see myself doing it, but I also see myself um, teaching my kids that and they're learning a whole lot about how to, you know, think big dreams and then go after them. Um, one thing I also just wanted to pick up on from what you said before. So you talk about your dad having experience of growing up around like segregation and segregated communities. And I think probably for, for someone in the UK, and like I must confess, this is probably my own um, naivety when it comes to history. But like I always think of segregation as being a lot longer ago than that. So that's just quite, it's just a really interesting thing to note. So what, mm-hmm. what were the stories that he was telling you about segregation? And like what, what was that experience... What, is, what does it practically look like? So is it like certain areas of the city are like, you're only allowed to live there if you're white or you're only allowed to live there if you're black? Like what does it f- sort of practically look like for, for people of your dad's generation there? Yeah, um, exactly. That's exactly what it looks like. There were, um, and there wasn't, um, when he actually was growing up, there weren't, 
particular neighborhoods that you could only live there if you were black or white um, in in policy or in law. But there were it was in practice because if you you know there were if you didn't make a certain amount of money, <clears throat> there was no way you were going to live in certain communities. And so um, the effect really was while he was growing up still segregation. And so uh, he always talks about when he was growing up uh, for schools, they, they actually legally were still segregated until he was <clears throat> in high school. And so um, he, at, it, when he was growing up in South, in Columbia, there were actually only two high schools. Um, they were the black high schools and then the other high schools were the white high schools. And wow. so, and that's in know, what year? Like when are we talking? So he, he graduated high school in 1967. Wow. Yeah. So this was, yeah, early, early sixties where, you know, he was practically able to go somewhere else, but you know, where he lived, it was still this, this major high school. Um, but it's interesting again, because um, the, the reality of it was, like I said, you had areas of town that although, you know, it was predominantly African-American because everybody lived there, then of course, everybody supported the businesses there. Uh, everybody looked out for each other's children. It was really more a, a great sense of community. And I think most scholars will tell you that one of the unintended effects of integration in the United States was that um, once communities were opened up to everybody, you had uh, the African-American communities that were really close-knit and, you know, uh, really a sense of community. You had them more dispersed because people were moving into the suburbs and other areas that traditionally they couldn't go into. And that happened, you saw a real disinvestment in the minority communities you saw the lack of or the sense of community that people had kind of go away and people didn't really know each other. And so it's interesting because if, if you guys are, are watching and I know you are uh, what's happening right now in the United States, as far as um, the calls for dismantling systemic racism and addressing, you know, uh, systemic racism within law enforcement and that kind of stuff. I think you can, all of that is, is is still the result of, I think, uh, segregation and the movement into desegregation and it being done in a way that didn't affect um, the culture to the point where um, people were understanding of different cultures because people felt like maybe certain laws were being forced on them. There, there started to be some animosities. And then I think the it did dismantle the systems that were traditionally set up uh, that oppressed minority communities. And so um, I think right now what you see in the United States is the bubbling over of, you know, years and years of that, which, you know, being part of it is one thing, but I'll tell you, Graham, being part of it as an elected leader, an African-American female elected leader is really huge for me right now because I'm dealing with, you know, that systemic racism, even within city policies and how do we address those to the point where our citizens feel respected and feel like their voices are being heard. Um, so that's just a whole nother layer of, of leadership. I've never led, led through a lot of times, but leading through 
um, this racial and social unrest right now is is very eye opening for me, and it brings back a lot of those memories and stories that my dad used to tell me. Yeah, um, I suppose also just the proximity to that, right? Like we're talking about the shakeout from being one generation ago, you know. And I think sometimes with um, certainly one of the big stories here in the UK, I don't know if you saw it, but there was um, a slave owner called Edward Colston who has several buildings named after him in Bristol. Um, one of our, uh, I guess, sort of, I don't know, I'm going to insult people from Bristol here, fifth or sixth biggest city in the UK? Is Someone's going to email me now saying, no, actually we're the fourth or something. <laughs> but, like, um, but yeah, so Edward Colson, there were, he's, because he was a slave owner and became very wealthy off the back of that, he then uh, donated a lot of money to that city. And so there are, there's things like Colston Hall, which they're debating renaming. And there's a statue of him um, which was torn down um, by protesters a few weeks ago and uh, was in a very symbolic way thrown into the harbour. And um, the elected uh, politician there, I think he's the mayor, I think, but he said, you know, the um, the throwing of that statue into the uh, into the harbour is now part of that statue's history, right? And um, that was just a very big event here. But then you think about Edward Colston being from 200 years ago, you know, you're talking about literally like your dad, you know, like the next generation. And so having to be, uh, having to sort of untangle that and, um, you know, see a new reality settle down. Like it's, it's so relatively recent that, um, yeah, no wonder that uh, involves a lot of, um, you know, things bubbling up or things not being as they should and, and so on. That's, you know, it's just a really remarkable thing, I think, for, uh, for a Brit sort of watching what's happening across the pond and also what's happening here, um, just, just, just to kind of recognize how uh, recent and raw a lot of that stuff is. Um, yeah. But this is also not the first time you've dealt with issues that you've had to lead your city through um, that have been really turbulent and really um traumatic right so there was the the removal of the confederate flag um there was obviously the uh, charleston church shooting as well Uh, do you want to talk about some of those events and and what that's been like for you i suppose maybe there's um because they were not happening right now maybe there's a bit more like distance and, and learning that you can take from that but i'd love to just hear your your observations on on leading through some of those really turbulent periods too yeah definitely it's it's interesting because again kind of looking back on my my time you know especially within the last 10 years we've had several things um so our city actually uh, was also hit by i call it a thousand year flood but it was a, a major flood event that you know only happens every thousand years and it and we lost um several residents um died during that flood um this is like 2015 right yes 2015 um and it was it was a lot uh you know schools were closed of course um uh, a lot of infrastructure was damaged roads and bridges and um just having to deal with that and, and how do we make sure that we're keeping our citizens safe as well as being able to protect the assets of the city, the infrastructure and things. So that was one. And then, yes, um, the Confederate flag came down uh, shortly after the Charleston church shooting. Um, You know, we had 
demonstrations and protests at that time and, you know, the removal of the flag. And we were, you know, of course, on the national stage then. And then the, the Charleston church shooting is very personal because uh, I knew um, Senator Clemente Pinckney, who was uh, one of the nine who was killed, um, and who's the pastor of the church. Um, and for me, it's also very unique because the shooter actually uh, grew up in our community. Uh, his uh, grandparents um, and parent and father lived in my neighborhood. Wow. And so I know members of his family. And so, you know, our community also dealt with, you know, the feeling that, you know, we had a state leader and others gunned down in such a heinous fashion, you know, in, in, at the end of a Bible study, but also how pretty much, you know, the shooter was homegrown in our community and, you know, what, what creates that kind of anger and malice that you would take someone's life typically, you know, basically just because of, of the color of their skin. Um, and so our community uh, dealt with that as well. And so leading through those times, it, it, it is interesting because, you know, you, you find yourself as an elected official, a lot of people think, okay, they're solely about policy. They um, enact policy, they enact laws, and then they make sure they get implemented. It's really not that easy because when you're dealing with trying to affect policy that makes the lives of the citizens that you serve better, you got to deal with the social issues as well. You got to deal with the feelings as well. Um, and and what we're talk- dealing with now, you know, what created those systems of oppression and racism and hatred um, to the point where what can we do to try and uh, react to those, dismantle those. And so, you know, as a leader, um, I found myself, number one, just really identifying uh, with the pain that the citizens I represent dealt with through all those instances. Um, and then feeling like, you know, and then showing the leadership on, okay, this is what we can do to move forward as a community. This is what we can do to make things better. And so whether it was, you know, making sure that, you know, as the flag came down, freedom of speech was protected and folks who believed it needed to stay up, um, you know, were be able to protest peacefully. But then at the end of the day, the flag came down with, you know, no violence, no issues. You know, that was part of it. And then the conversations that we as a community had to have after that, as far as, you know, what, um, you know, what made Dylan Roof, you know, the white supremacist he was, you know, young, you know, most people don't think about it. Like you, you mentioned, even from what my father dealt with, it's a, it was a generation ago, but a generation seems long enough to the point where you would think that, you know, kids were, were growing, were raising kids in such a diverse society now, you know, I find the young people that I represent a lot more open to, you know, interracial relationships, uh, yeah. you know, uh, gay relationships, making sure we're taking care of the environment. I mean, the young people are so uh, open in their thinking. And so to meet and hear of a young person who is um, who has uh, racist views, and especially, like I mentioned, I know his family and I don't, I, I, that's not what he was taught and raised. So to figure out where does that person get those views and how do those things get supported. So our community had to have some real tough conversations about, uh, you know, what, what was going on and, and, and how do we make sure that we are 
having those racial racial reconciliation conversations and uh, you know addressing people's pain, but also figuring out how do we um, create a an environment where uh, tolerance and racial diversity and inclusion are the norm versus um, you know in some areas where it really probably was more of the exception. Yeah. Um, when in that in the process of that, would you address your own pain? So obviously you knew the family of the shooter, you knew um, one of the victims really well. There's obviously shock, there's grief, there's all kinds of things running through your head at that point. Is it a case of putting all that to one side to do the job or is it a case of trying to to channel those emotions into the job? Like what was your sort of did you have a kind of strategy about how to manage yourself through that and how to, how to, how to make it okay for you personally? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I intentionally had a strategy. <laughs> it was just kind of probably more uh, gut instinct, but looking back how I managed that really was, um, you know, the, of course the, the, the day of, and you know, the days following uh, were more, uh, talking with my husband and my and my close friends about, you know, processing, you know, the loss of our friend, as well as um, the uh, acknowledging that, you know, I, as an elected official and as a neighbor, represented uh, the family of, of Mr. Roof. And so I, re- I actually remember the day after of the shooting going down to uh, uh, Dylan's grandparents' house, who, you know, lived very close to me and knocking on the door. And they were like, go away, go away. And it was because I was like, hi, it's Tanika. And they opened the door and they were both just sobbing. And um, I gave them both a hug and they were like, I'm sorry. You know, we've been being harassed all day and, wow. and by the media and other folks. And so they, you know, that's why they had that initial reaction of go away. Um, but, you know, I ended up giving them a hug and um, talking with them about, you know, the pain that they were feeling. and. Um, it was just so initially my thought was more instinctively, it was more, how do I help, you know, I process my thoughts and pains through helping other people process theirs, being honest with, you know, what it meant to me, but also, you know, being a leader and, and showing that, you know, I've respected, you know, these folks and as my constituents, but also as, as neighbors. And so over the course of those conversations, um, I think how I probably dealt with it was being, you know, yes, I'm a city leader, but I'm also a wife and a mom and a community leader. And so I'm going to uh, deal with my pain the way I'm telling you to deal with it by being honest with it and confronting it and and, and talking about solutions. And I think that's really my personality. I'm more action oriented. So even like what we're going through now in our country, I've been talking to folks about, okay, but what's the action? Let's deal with what our feelings are, but what's our next steps? What's our action? And I think that that has been the way I process it. Um, And it's been good for me, but it's also, also I think been good for um, the the leadership in me that I see um, how it's evolved, that I've become more of intuitive about the action that we need to take next instead of just dwelling on where we are right now. Yeah, problems are just projects that we haven't named yet, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Wow, that's <laughs> just really struck by that story. If you knocking on the door of the um, perpetrator's family, that's just that's a really powerful, um, just a really powerful image. Um, let's talk about uh, life, like quite unbelievably. Let's talk about life outside <laughs> of your role as an elected official. So, as well as obviously steering your community through some some huge things um just just in in that uh it's it's classed as a a part-time role or it's it, it's paid as a part-time role so you basically have to have another job outside of that to to kind of make the whole thing work right 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 yeah and we we are paid a whopping $13,000 a year in US dollars um, so, um, yeah, it really is a, a passion and a commitment to public service. So, yes, I have to have another full-time job that pays the bills and supports my family. Um, like I mentioned, I, I am married, so I'm lo- uh, happy that I have a, a two, you know, two-parent income family, um, but we have three kids. I have a 14-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and so... Um, you know, and I've got to pay for college for all three. So I've got to have a full-time job. Um, I, when I first ran for office and still am, uh, I'm a partner in my own law firm. I started my own law firm the year I ran for office, which is, I know most people are like, you did what? But I was working for the government at the time and, and to run for office, uh, was a conflict. And so I found myself very quickly thrust in a position to have to make a decision to leave the job that I was in that was paying really good salary, um, but uh, would not support my goal to run for office. And so I actually became an entrepreneur. I started my own law firm uh, in 2001 um, so that I could run for office. And so um, I am, this year will be 19 years in practice. Um, and I, so I have a partner in my own law firm, and that is pretty much my full-time nine-to-five job. Uh, but being an elected official, I tend to speak a lot, do conferences. And so out of that, um, and then out of my desire to uh, particularly want to motivate or or encourage uh, working parents um, that sometimes feel like they have that constant pull and struggle with how do I, you know, be successful in my career as well as, you know, be, you know, a very present, you know, parent and have a, a productive uh, personal life as well, I found myself kind of drawn into a new profession. So about uh, four years ago, I started my own firm, um, my own uh, consulting, public speaking, and coaching firm. And so that is like my other business. So I call myself a serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So my income pretty much comes from my law firm full time, but also the new business that I've been growing uh, working primarily with working parents and on work-life integration skills and strategies, leadership, um, but really targeting towards working parents so that um, they can still have successful careers, but also, you know, be parents. Yeah. So that's the Possibilities Institute, right? Correct. Yeah. So now you've got basically these I was going to say three roles. It's four roles, isn't it? So you've got the role of parents, right? <laughs> three kids is not to be uh, discounted. Uh, then you've got the elected official role. Then you've got the law firm. And then you've got Possibilities Institute. Do you, at the start of a year or at the start of a month or at the start of a day, 
you know, do you sort of think about what the split of time is between those different roles? Like, do you have kind of measures of measures of success for uh, how much or how little time you need to spend on each of those things? Definitely. And it varies. Of course, it also varies about what's going on. So as you could imagine, between, you know, COVID-19 and the racial and social unrest in the, in the city or in the nation, um, the last couple months have been, uh, I've spent a lot more time in my elected role than I probably would have had we not been going through those particular issues. So it kind of, it, it gets um, driven by uh, circumstances sometimes, but for the most part, yes, I do all of that at the very beginning of the year. I have my goals and I talk about, you know, kind of what my productivity measures look like, uh, whether it is income, whether it is completion of certain projects, you know, so I do that. I plan that out at, at the beginning of the year. Ironically enough, I think most people, uh, when you woke up um, January 1st, 2020, you know, people call it the year of perfect vision and had like great, great goals. You know, when I look at my, what I set out on January 1st, 2020, no one could have expected that we would have. Uh, a worldwide pandemic and, you know, racial and social justice um, issues. And so a lot of the things I set out then have had had to change. So yes, I, I revisit my goals and my productivity measures every month. I also do it every week. So on Sundays, I, I look at the week, I look at what's on the schedule. I, I understand kind of what is expected of me that week. And then I'll I'll make my my decision as far as, you know, what time I'm going to spend on everything. I am very much, um, I won't say tied to my calendar, but I'm very much um, directed by uh, things I put on my calendar because if I see them on my calendar, then I know it deserves the time that I've said it needs. And so that's kind of how that I, I determine what time I spend on, on what roles. And, and that's the really, I think the beauty of what I call work-life integration is it's all fluid. It can change from day to day, but at least identifying that these are things that need to happen and these are the, the goals for it and these are the measures of success for it. Um, it doesn't matter if it happens at four o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the evening. It's going to get done because it's something I've, I've placed on paper and said I'm going to get done. Yeah. Um, squeezing so much stuff in like that. So we talk about four different roles. What's the do you think there's a consequence of that? Like, is there a downside to doing as much as you do? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're not careful, the downside, and I think it's, you know, whether it's all the stuff I do or even, you know, a fraction of that, I think the downside always is burnout mm. um, and a, a certain level of dissatisfaction because you feel overwhelmed or you feel um, like you failed at something. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I try and work a lot on with, you know, the folks that I work with, either in my consulting or my coaching practice, because usually when I first talk to folks, they're doing probably almost as much as I am. Um, you know, it might not be in divided between four different roles. It might be divided just between, you know, two two roles, you know, parent and, you know, an entrepreneur or, you know, parent and employee. Um, but, you know, they feel overwhelmed because they still have a lot on their plate. And, and so I think the way you combat that downside is um, I always tell people giving yourself grace. So, you know, right now, I, I mentioned to you, you know, today, yes, I'm up early. I'm doing some stuff. 
but I'm going to get more stuff done this morning than most people will get done all day. And then for the rest of the day, I'm taking a day off and I'm spending with my kids by the pool. And nice. so um, I think that if you uh, give yourself grace and you recognize that, you know, being productive with the time that you have, you can get a whole lot done when you set your mind to, you know, a couple hours of getting things done than you would if you just really kind of don't have a plan for it and you let it linger on through the, the course of a day. So um, I, I don't have the burnout that I probably, well, that I know I used to have. And I know I probably um, would have if I didn't really set out my expectations for myself and, you know, for the people around me and be very intentional in the way that I spend my time. So a couple of things on that. So like thinking about that, setting your mind to it and I guess it's just a general productivity question but do you have any particular I don't know rituals or particular um, sort of rules that you like to follow to to really help you get your mind on the game and like making sure you are making the most of those um, hours particularly I guess the morning hours because you've got up early right you want to make sure that something good comes from it yeah, definitely. Well, so yeah, ritual wise, um, I, every morning I um, meditate and pray. You know, I'm, I'm a, I have a very strong faith, and I know that you know everything that I have is uh, is God given and God anointed. And so um, I, you know, I make sure I take my time uh, to pray and spend some time with God in the morning and and let Him, you know energize me but also you know help guide my day and so I do that no matter what time I wake up whether it's a 4 30 you know wake up time morning or it's a you know 6 30 wake up time morning I'm going to make sure that I have at least 15 to 30 minutes of me time meditating praying um and that that just really sets the tone for my day so that's a mm -hmm. ritual um also, a ritual is like, you know, sometimes when I'm going in the day um, and things are getting a little bit, you know, overwhelming or I feel like I need that jolt and that push. I'm not a caffeine, you know, coffee drinker type person. Um, and so as some people be like, they hit that midday slump and they're like, oh, I need some coffee or whatever. I don't do that. But what I do is I call, I have power song. I call it my power song. And so, um you know, I have a song that will motivate me and kind of push me. And I kind of equate it to if anybody's like an exercise person or a runner, um, I have, you know, I have this running app. And when I'm running, um, if I'm about to go get a hill, there's this button I can press on my thing that says power song. And that song energizes me and motivates me. <laughs> What's and the song? I, so right now it is Worth It by Fifth Harmony. <laughs> Uh, but it used to be any Beyonce song. Okay. Um, and and um, and then also I'm Every Woman by by um, uh, uh, Whitney Houston. That definitely can get me through the day. So you know, so I've got a, a couple. Uh, but having a power song that kind of energizes you, that even if you're tired, it's going to get you get your blood pumping. Uh, so that's kind of one of my rituals. Like midday, if I feel like I'm getting a slump, I'll you know do that. Um, and then the last thing I'll just share real quickly is that um, I'm also, um, I mentioned before about intentionality. Um, uh, and after I do my morning meditation, I have affirmations. But my, all my affirmations, uh, how I end them is that 
I will be intentional in everything that I do today. And when I do my schedule, I always tell myself, let your, um, give yourself permission to let your priorities drive your actions. And so I'm very intentional at, if it's something that I'm doing in the day, that it, it actually is moving the needle forward on something that's one of my goals. I don't believe in building a schedule with busy work or things that really aren't that important. I'm very intentional how I spend my time. That leads me really nicely on actually the other thing I was going to ask you about, which is, I guess, with four roles, the most obvious thing that could be problematic there or the most obvious hazard to avoid is the fact that all four of them can grow and all four of them can uh, try and sort of eat up more and more of your time and attention. So how do you... How do you define success in those roles and how do you say no? I'll start with the second question first because I'll say (laughs) saying no used to be a challenge for me. It is so easy now because, again, my internal analysis is even though this might be a, a nice thing to do, does it move the needle on some of my goals? You know, is this a, a good use of my time? So, for instance, I, as you can imagine, I get asked to be serving lots of boards and commissions. I could not have any more boards and commissions placed on my plate. And so, you know, but sometimes it's a great cause. And, and you know, someone important to me asks, and I'll, but I'll say no. But what I will do is say, hey, I really can't take this on right now. But what are the characteristics that you're looking for for a board member? And let me see if I can find someone to fill that role. And I have so many you know, clients and mentees and other people that I know have great skill sets that want to get more involved in the community, who want leadership roles. And so I'm able to pair them with that board um, and then I can easily say no. So one of the things I find is most people, they have guilt around saying no. I take that guilt away by still, you know, being able to help the person connect them with someone else. And then I have no guilt in saying no. So saying no has become very easy for me because I've, I've been able to say no, uh, a no, but no, but let me connect you with this person or no, but have you thought of this? And so being saying no has been very easy. And so it keeps me doing the things that align with my priorities and what's important to me. Um, And then um, the thing about, you know, the roles growing and um, what I I really try and do, and that's why, again, I call it work-life integration is, you know, I I actually find that all the roles that I have are all part of who I am and they're all very important and they don't have to independently exist. And so what I mean by that is um, my children, they do a lot of things with me. So when I am speaking at a conference, you know, we, the whole family may go, I'm speaking at a conference. And then once I'm finished with my role there, then we're having a mini family vacation. Um, Or if I'm hosting a conference, my kids, you'll tend to see them as the hostesses at the door um, (laughs) or running the the cashier. My 14 year old thinks she's a, a, a treasurer. So she, she'll run the cashier, you know, or something like that. So they're very involved in the things that I do and the roles that I have. And twofold, number one, it teaches them about business, about hard work and what mommy does. And so that when I am, when I do have to be away, they get it. They know why mommy's not here. They know why, um, you know, what she's doing because they've seen me in action. 
Um, and so I think it, it helps develop their skills, but it also helps us understand, you know, the realities that mommy has to go away sometime, but they understand where it is. So they're not like, oh, I wish mommy was home. Um, and so that helps me there. But the other thing, in addition to teaching them, it also gives me the ability that I don't feel like I'm, I'm dividing my time. Mm-hmm. You know, I might be at a conference. I'm there as my role as, you know, entrepreneur, but I'm also there as my role as mommy. So when it comes around to the um, bring your kids to work day at school, <laughs> your, your kids are just like, ah, we've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It hurt my feelings a couple of years ago when they had shadow day and you know, all these kids were asking, could they shadow me? And my, I asked my 14, I was like, are you going to come to work with mommy? And she was like, no. So before we finish, we should probably talk about family then. Um, so you've got three kids um, getting uh, ready and G'd up to start paying the college fees, as you were talking about before. Um, and then you've also got this... Um, a uh, show that you do with your husband, Jamie, called Date Night with the Divine. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So Date Night with the Divines, we're actually in our second season, and it is a web-based show um, that is on our YouTube page as well as um, just sometimes do it on Facebook Live. Uh, but it is, uh, so we are, we're kind of an anomaly. We are a double elected family. Um, my husband is actually chairman of our school board. Um, and, and then, but again, that's also a part-time job. So he also is president and CEO of his own nonprofit, uh, that does housing development. Um, and like I mentioned, because we're both elected officials, but we also are, you know, we're very active in the community and we tend to take our kids a lot of places. We would get a lot of feedback from people like, you know, how do you guys do it? Um, you know, we, you know, we love your relationship. We love your uh, to see, you know, all the things that you guys do. And um, as you can imagine, you know, especially for the African-American community, having really strong examples of strong marriages, strong families, sometimes is not portrayed in the mainstream media as much. And so because we kept getting all these comments, we decided utilizing technology, why don't we start a web-based show um, not just about us, but what we do is we interview other couples about work-life balance, about, you know, raising a family, about being public servants, different things, um, it, uh, different topics that we do. And so we have that as a monthly show. Um, and so in addition to all the things that we do, we started that, but it's really just kind of a, a, a way to connect uh, with other couples, but also a way to highlight uh, great examples of strong marriages and people who are making uh, parenting and careers work uh, for them in, in whatever way that looks like. So we have that. Um, and yeah, our kids have been a part of that as well. You know, they, they see all the things that we're doing. And, you know, like I say, I, I feel like it, it teaches them a lot more uh, by seeing us do things than what we could do by just telling them. So you must be um, one of the only households where the the kids are going, uh, yeah, mum and dad are into this YouTube thing. I don't quite understand it. <laughs> it's usually the, the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it is kind of the other way around in that they, they get into it. So, you know, our oldest will say, you know, this is what you should do as far as marketing. And this is the kind of hashtags you should use. Oh, nice. So people could find it. And then our, our nine-year-old is like, 
uh, this is the way the camera should could be. And she likes to think that she's, she's the film, she's a producer. And so <laughs> get behind the camera Steven and, Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it's teaching them so many different things that, you know, if they, if it's something they tag onto, they'll end up liking it. And I laugh because our nine year old is, is like that. She sees a lot of things we do and she'll emulate it. So at nine years old, she's a published author. She has her own book. She has her own, um, a t-shirt line. And she does YouTube a little bit, but she likes to be more behind the camera than in front of the wow. camera. Wow, that's role modeling right there. Right, <laughs> so she's already got that uh, that work ethic and that sort of dynamism. That uh, I wonder where she got that from. Eh? Like <laughs> <laughs> um, they see more than you can tell them. So, and that's really what I want people to know. I mean, it's like when 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 we get really stressed about work life balance, and you know, we got to do this, and we feel that parent guilt. Um, I don't, I don't have parent guilt. Well, I can't say I don't have parent guilt. I think we all have parent guilt here and there, but the way I address it is because I think that, you know, we underestimate what our children are seeing when they see our hustle. They see us performing well at work and and the other things that are important to us. They see our satisfaction in doing good work and that teaches them a whole lot. And, you know, that's what we all want. We want to raise really healthy, you know, well-rounded kids. And I think the best way you can do that is by doing your best um, in everything that you do because you're teaching them a lot by doing that. And I guess also speaking for myself as a parent, I think there's probably a lot of stuff where if you're hopeful or fearful or if, you know, you have a particular emotion around something, you can often the instinct is to sort of hide that that kind of thing from your kids, right? And kind of protect them. But they probably pick up on, you know, a lot more than we realize, right? And that's um, a, a big part of things. So I guess I, I guess I kind of wanted to finish just with um, bringing us back to, you know, kind of where we started the conversation around uh, being an elected official in one of the southern states of America right now, and and Black Lives Matter and and everything that's been happening. And I'd love you to just share. Um, a hope and a fear so maybe just a fear of um uh you know in terms of describing um things that you're seeing there but also just a hope of um what you think this moment might mean in the future um okay so i think um you know a a possible uh, i guess a fear which i hope is unbounded but a fear i think is um like i mentioned so when you know our country went through, you know, desegregation and integration, I think it was done in a manner that probably allowed um, people to retreat into, you know, their own prejudices and resentment to, you know, the, the transition to the point where I think it, it really, it supported deep-seated um, hate, hatred and, and resentment and racism that, you know, has manifested itself in other ways through this country. And so one of my fears is that if we don't handle this moment in time right, um, you know, whether or not we will, uh, we will get those things again. You know, you hear some of these really uh, uh, extreme groups talking about, you know, another civil war and other things. And I don't think any of that really will happen. But you know, there's a potential if we don't handle this right. So that's my fear is that, you know, the people in leadership, um, the people who are 
helping progress the dialogue um, do not handle this moment in time right to the point that we are addressing uh, the issues in a real um, real way, a real sustainable way so that uh, we don't you know, go backwards. I guess that, that would be my fear. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is my hope is I feel like uh, this time is really different. Um, in this country, we have, you know, had other issues, um, other incidents of police brutality. We've had issues like the Charleston Nine, you know, which are, have been very hor- horrendous hate crimes um, that have played out right in front of our eyes. And we went on with our lives after that and didn't make any real changes. This time feels real different. And so what my hope is, is that, you know, we are at a, a fork in the road, a turning point in this country and in this nation, I mean, in this this world where um, we will address um, racism, oppression, um, sexism, you know, all of those isms uh, to the point where, you know, we all want to, to leave our world better for our children. I'm hopeful that, you know, this moment will be a real turning point. And so that I feel comfortable uh, in the world that my kids are growing up in that, you know, that they're not going to deal with some of probably, you know, the issues that I and certainly their, their grandparents have dealt with in their lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it feels like a big moment here too. It feels different. And um, you're, uh, we're counting on you. You know, you're in a really um, big position of responsibility there, and um, leading your community through this moment is a is a huge responsibility. So um, there's a lot of people counting on you, and it sounds like a lot of the experiences that you've had in the past will really uh, stand you in good stead in this moment as well. So, just want to say, hugely inspiring, Tamika. It's just been amazing having you on the podcast, and um, uh, let's just finish with. Uh, how people can find out more about you and connect with you. I know you do a, a regular uh, thing all around work-life integration. So if people want to check that out and, and learn a bit more from you, um, where do they go? Uh, how do they connect with you? Definitely. Well, I'm on all social media with my name, Tamika Isaac Devine. So you can get me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, I'm also on Twitter. There I'm at T.I. Devine. So it's the first two initials and the last name. So Tamika Isaac Devine on the first three, T.I. Devine on Twitter. Um, and then uh, people can always go to my website, which is adivinelife.com. And Divine is D-E-V as in Victor, I-N-E. So adivinelife.com. And if you go to my website, you can find out more about my uh, my free tips, my newsletter, even how to you know connect with me, even to sign up for a free uh, call to talk about work-life integration. I love doing free strategy sessions with parents to talk about, you know, how do you design your day so that you're doing some things. Um, but to get the weekly free tips, all you have to do is go to freetips.adivinelife.com and you will get um, your free tips, work-life integration tips that you can tailor to your life and hopefully uh, become more productive and gain more time in your life to live the life that you desire and the life that you deserve amazing we'll put links to all of that in the show notes which is at getbeyondbusy.com so you can go there and um, uh, springboard off into all those various different uh, links and social media and everything but uh, just to say again thanks for being on beyond busy and um, it's still early there right so um, enjoy 
the rest of your day and some very well-earned family downtime later on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Graham. You do. You have a great day and enjoy the rest of your summer. So there you go. What a woman. Really enjoyed that one and was just really struck by just the intensity of some of those experiences that she'd been dealing with and um, just the the skill with which she'd navigated through some of those situations. So really enjoyed that one. Hope you did too. Um, if you want to find out more, you can go to getbeyondbusy.com. Um, there you'll find the show notes for this episode, along with all the links to all the back issues the back issues kind of sounds like one of those uh things that you'd say about comics in the 1990s or something but all the all the back episodes previous episodes of the podcast and if you're also not following me just more widely then i'm at graham alcott on instagram and also on twitter and if you go to graham you'll see a form there where you can sign up for my rev up for the week emails so every sunday night i just put something in your inbox just to give you a positive thought for the week ahead. So if you're interested in that, it's uh, it really is not salesy at all. I, I guess at some point I'll probably try and put links into things that I'm doing that I want people to buy. But really it's um, for me just about putting some useful content out once a week on a mailing list that I own and uh, having the deadline to be able to do that. So go to graymalcott.com and you'll find the form to sign up for that. Thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and Podient, our host platform, and also to Think Productive for hosting the show. So if you're interested in productivity training, coaching, if you want to find out more about how to get your inbox to zero or become a productivity ninja, then go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find out more there. So that's it for this week. Um, We're actually going to start from September. We're going to go weekly with the podcast. So you... Uh, hopefully you're, you've been subscribed, been enjoying these two weekly episodes and we're actually going to go weekly. So I hope, hopefully that is good news that you have more in your inbox. I know they're quite long, so some of you might take two weeks to consume the whole episode. I don't know, but we're going to go weekly. We're going to throw more stuff at you from September. And as always, if you have recommendations for particular guests you'd like to see, I've had some really good recommendations actually in the last few weeks. And some of those are actually starting to filter through as episodes that are coming up. So if you want to drop me a line, you want to say hi, it's just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks time, starting with our September uh, weekly podcast onslaught. So until then, enjoy what's left of the summer. Take care and bye for now. (laughs) 